U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and just fresh out of a timeout is Steven, the XO. Hey there, everyone. Listen, Captain, I told you not to put me in the box, okay? I was behaving. I was good. All I did was head up to the gunnery deck and tell them, you know, that target, we're going to shift it to the mainland. Practice some shore bar barrages. Oh, you didn't get the memo? You're supposed to go to the corner, not the box. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll leave you two of this then and uh, head to the corner. Bye. Well, no, your punishment's over. Oh, okay. You just chose the box instead of the corner. Oh, nobody puts the XO in the corner. I do. I'm the captain. I'll have to consult the rule book. Go ahead. I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to finish off the Mexican-American War with the last of the battles. Lots of, uh, a bunch of uh, short ones. So uh, a lot of we show up. We fire our cannons for a few minutes. We call it a day and uh, break out the grog. We'll find out. Let's cast off. Let's get underway. So we're going to start with the Battle of La Paz. This was in the Pacific, and it occurred November 16th and 17th of 1847. So in late September, Captain Manuel Pinda of the Mexican army began to put together a large force of farmers and ranchers to defend the Gulf of California from, you know, us, the U.S. So he was able to get a force of about 300. 300 to defend a stretch that size? Seems a little small. Well, I mean, he is just using ranchers and farmers. It's a militia. It's not an army. Oh. So, in March and April, the 1st Regiment of New York Volunteers arrives in San Francisco. Their mission is to reinforce the Navy and the Marines that were already occupying various ports to the south and also to take more of the ports themselves. The commander of this regiment was Lieutenant Colonel Harry S. Burton of the U.S. Army. And on May 30th, he receives orders to get onto the sloop of war USS Lexington with two of his companies and to go to La Paz to capture it. So he puts the guys on the boat, sets sail, and, the, and they arrive on July 21st. And... He and 112 of his men land at La Paz. And so far, no shots are fired. We have a description from his lieutenant, a Mr. E. Gould Buffum. He describes the port city, quote, The houses were of adobe, plastered white, and thatched with the leaves of the palm tree, and were most delightfully cool. The whole beach was lined with palms, date, fig, teramid, and coconut trees. Their delicious fruit hanging down on them in clusters. This is sounding more like shore leave than it is a looming battle. Yeah, he sounds like he's in love with the place, doesn't it? So, 
by the time these guys get here, Penda, the Mexican general, he is able to bring in a couple more hundred men. He has 500 men now because he started pressing other people into service. He fed them by plundering people he called collaborators. Pretty much this got to be a situation of, I'm no longer asking for volunteers. Welcome to the Mexican army. If you won't cooperate, thank you for supplying the Mexican army. Exactly. And then he sets out for La Paz and San Jose del Cabo, which are both at this time occupied by the United States. So now we come to November 16, and he finds that the 200 men that he pressed into service deserted. <laughs> yeah, that's par for the course. So he's back down to his original 300 men, and he attacks the garrison at La Paz. The guys were stationed at a adobe barrack, and so Pinda, he takes half of his forces and puts three lieutenants in charge and says, you know what, you guys, you go to San Jose del Cabo, and you guys take them out while we stay here and take these guys out. How many Americans were uh, landed at this point? Well, here in La Paz, there are 112 infantry, two artillery pieces, and a artillery battery. So you only have 300 men, and I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume he did a little bit of scouting. You're giving him a lot of benefits, but yeah. I'm giving him a lot of benefits right now, yes. But you only have 300 men, and you think it's a great idea to split your forces. Do you remember the ratio that you should go into battle with to be able to take a entrenched, defended position? Yep, you want 3 to 1 ratio. Yep. Which is what you have right now. No. I'm a 2 to 1 with his full force. I thought you said 120. He started out with 300, and he split that pretty much in half to go after two different positions, two different garrisons. Right, so so before splitting his forces, he, a little shy, but had roughly 3 to 1. No, it's more closer to 2 to 1. Oh, okay. But, anyway, Burton, his 112 infantry, they... They occupied a position overlooking La Paz on the south side of a gulch. All right. And they piled palm logs around their barracks and around a emplacement for both of their artillery pieces, which were six-pound field guns. No horses this time? No, this wasn't flying artillery. Okay. And they used canister rounds for their ammunition. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be bad. So when Pindia attacks the barracks, the Americans, because of their defensive positions, they defend themselves very well. The field guns and the musket positions were placed in optimal positions, and they easily repulsed the attack. Now, once Pindia retreats and looks at it again, he realizes 
Well, you know what? These guys have really good defensive positions. So, go to sleep, guys. Get your rest. Tomorrow, we're out of here. I understand you just lost a battle. You're probably exhausted. You might be a little frazzled, even. Why the heck are you going to set up camp that close? Gentlemanly conduct of war? I have no idea. Show me where in the rulebook it says don't attack camp if the enemy is sleeping. It is on the third shelf down on the right. No, Captain, those are my RPG books. You rearranged the library. I did. Well, then you're going to have to find it. <laughs> they withdraw to La Laguna, which is about six miles. And before leaving, you know what they did? Uh, is they the uh, Mexican army or the American army right now? Mexican. The Americans aren't going anywhere. Okay. Um, try to raid the American barracks for some supplies? No, it's too well defended. What do they try and do? They don't try, they do do. Okay. They burn the military governor, his manor, or his townhouse, and other buildings that belong to the, quote, collaborators on their way out. Insert obligatory arson joke here. Again, we've been over this. When the script says that, you have to actually say a joke. Oh, uh, burn, baby, burn. Mexican War Inferno, burn, baby, burn. No, see, that's what I expected. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, the Americans, they have one person killed and a couple more wounded. It was very low for them. I was going to say the pretty minimal casualties then. Right. And actually, it wasn't very bad on the Mexican side either. They had four, maybe five killed and a unknown number of wounded. I mean, there could have been a lot of more wounded, but we just don't know. Well, and as we've gone over many times, like, despite what Hollywood likes to show, like the classic, you know, cinematic pitched battle of, you know, each side is just absolutely rolling in casualty. No, no, people don't like to stick around if things look dangerous or don't seem to be going their way. Yeah, as soon as the tide turns, more than likely they're like, it's time to get the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if a military force suffers more than 10% casualties, that's bad. Yeah. Usually in war, their casualties usually come from disease more than actual combat. All right, so we're going to move on to the siege of La Paz. Hey, we were just at this town. Yeah, it sounded very scenic, very beautiful. Delectable fruit trees, I believe, was the word. And a very good garrison. 10 out of 10. Would defend again. Right. This happened after, you know, the first battle. And this was a 12-day period between November and December. So, we're back with Pinda again. Remember when I was saying how he was drafting peasants to serve in his army? You know, that does sound a little familiar. Yeah. So after he was defeated here already and 
on the next battle, we're going to get into how he was defeated as well at San Jose del Cabo. Remember when they split his forces? Hey, spoilers. Oh, sorry. Yeah, maybe I was rooting for this guy. <laughs> he decides he's going to come back and try to finish what he had failed to do in the first time. San Jose Lopez number two. This time it's personal. Right. So, because of the one death, the garrison now has 111 men. So, Pinda comes back with about 500 men this time. So, now he's got the 3 to 1 ratio easily. So, he sets out from his base at La Lenga for La Paz around November 26th. And he gets up there, camps, and starts observing the next day, he starts positioning his troops around the settlement to start the siege. And once he gets everything set up, he's like, that town looks squishy. Let's go, men. And he personally leads an attack on the town. So they actually don't march in columns like, you know, wars of the past, the recent past. They advance with undercover of ravines and cactus towards the barrack positions. Yeah, that seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah. Now, the defense is that the American forces had put there, were still there, and they improved it, of course, and now it's kind of like a makeshift wall for them to have firing positions. And so... The Mexicans charged these new, more effective positions and are driven back by accurate musket fire. And remember the canister shot? Yep. Yep, I do. Did they? They do now. <laughs> oh, right. This is why we didn't get this position the last time. Yeah. So they're driven back. And Pinda's like, well, let's do some ineffective skirmishing for the next 12 days while we siege the place. And of course, you know, let's set fires to all of these buildings in the town. <laughs> so on December 8th, a small boat was sent to the... Navy ships blockading the port of Matslin. And they come back to La Paz with food, water, and ammunition. Which means, yeah, they're under siege, but supplies, they're still coming in. So your siege is ineffective. I was going to say, it isn't really a siege if uh, the defenders can still get supplies brought in, no problem. Yeah, that's just you making camp around the enemy's defensible position. And the enemy being like, that's that's fine. We can see you, so we know where you're at, which means you aren't harassing other forces of ours. Yeah. The guy didn't think this through, did he? <sighs> I mean, unless he also wanted to enjoy the delectable fruit trees. Wonder well, no, he doesn't want to enjoy the house as he keeps burning them down. Yeah. So, later... The USS Cyan 
which was commanded by Commodore William Shubrick, they get to San Jose from San Blas. Now, his mission was to relieve the American Army garrison, which was before then stranded on the Baja Peninsula with the ocean behind them and an overwhelming Mexican army in front of them. And once Pindia hears of the Cyan's arrival, he's like, Peace. <laughs> We're out of here. So the USS Cyan arriving there lifts the siege. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have a lot of luck with emplaced artillery. Artillery that can just sail around the uh, coastal area and, oh, look, there's the camp. Gunners adjust for uh, trajectory. All right, let them have it. Oh, they moved there. Hey, gunners, adjust again. Yep. So, so far, this guy, not good. I can't wait to hear about him again later. <laughs> You'll be hearing about him a couple more times. So, we don't know the casualty count of the Mexicans on this, quote, siege. Um, Henry Burton, he reports that he found 36 freshly dubbed graves around where the Mexican army was camped after, you know, they noped out. And on the American side, nobody was killed. A couple were said to be wounded, but we don't know any actual numbers. No uh, journal entries from, like, Camp Doctor or anything like that? No. There is a a report by Lieutenant Tunnis Craven describing the appearance of the town. Would you like to hear that? I'd love to hear it. Quote, All of that part of the town not protected by the garrison's muskets was burned. The vine and fig tree, as well as the graceful palm, all being devoured. Such are the beauties of war. Unquote. Wow, I really don't like this guy. This sounds like a really nice place. And then he's just like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to protect it from the American invaders by burning it to the ground. Yeah, but even then the lieutenant was like, Oh, look at the burned place. It's so beautiful. I, th I think he was being a little sarcastic. Well, I don't see his actual handwriting, so I can't tell if it was sarcastically written. Or, oh, you, you think that there may have been a, a few hearts around uh, the fire and, you know, smoldering town. I would be looking for the smiley winky face. Hmm. But we also know how much these guys love arson. Yeah, that, that has definitely been established in this show. Everybody that fought in the 19th century was a firebug. Right. So, we're going to move on to the Battle of San Jose del Cabo now. If you recall from earlier, this is the city that he split his forces with. Yeah, th this was the uh, in-between skirmish. This, this was the first one, when he split his forces and went for La Paz, and now... This is the other half, going for San Jose del Cabo. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, this was defended by 
Navy Lieutenant Charles Haywood, four sailors and 20 Marines, and a nine-pound carronade. This was the garrison at San Jose del Cabo. How the heck did he not take it? We're going to find out. Be patient, my little Padawan. These guys had 75 carbines. 20 of them were used to equip Californo militiamen, which were fighting with them because Lieutenant Colonel Henry S. Burton promised them rights. Now, of course, the garrison's only objective, which is any garrison's real objective, is to hold what you got. So they occupy the town's barracks, which was in a old church on a hill at the north end of town and had very good defenses. Matter of fact, they kind of lucked into it as well. How so? Because when they established their barracks, they were like, what will fit us all? That church will. Oh, look, it's on a hill. We can see everything. I mean, that's two out of three. So the three lieutenants and their force of 150 men, which are mainly peasants from the suburbs, they march on San Jose. And it takes them, after saying goodbye to Pinda, three days to get there. They arrive at night, and he was like, you know what, we're tired, we need to sleep, so what we're going to do is we're going to offer them terms of surrender. They can, you know, we'll say, hey, surrender to us, and we won't shoot you. <laughs> what were the terms? Or was it just, like, we want your complete unconditional surrender? We don't know what the terms were, but more than likely it was just surrender to us and you're not, nothing will happen. We'll just take you as prisoners and, you know, we brought coffee. Well, don't promise me with a good time. Where do I sign? Now, of course, this was denied. Haywood was like, no, I think I can take you. <laughs> so now that the Mexicans are nice and rested after their three-day march, they were like, attack! And the American forces manned their defensive positions. They placed their cannon right there at the door of the barracks. <laughs> knock, knock. Yeah, and the Mexicans charged right for it because they said, we need that cannon because guess what? We didn't bring any artillery. So, of course, this doesn't go well for them. This left the one of the lieutenants dead and between six and 12 of his men dead? Not exactly sure. The Mexicans say six and... Lieutenant Haywood says, no, it's 12. Well, maybe the uh, Californos weren't including their own in that six number, and the lieutenant was. Just a shot from the hip. The Californos were on the American side anyway. Oh, 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 I thought we were talking about American casualties at the moment. Nope, nope, this is all Mexican casualties. Okay, okay. 
So one lieutenant and six to 12. Yeah. Okay. So now the wounded, remember how I said they were charging the cannon? Please tell me it wasn't just a headlong charge. Well, we don't exactly know how many wounded, but they were mostly from artillery shells bursting in front of them. Guys, guys, guys. I'm no expert. I wouldn't even call myself an armchair general. But you don't rush artillery headlong. That's how you lose people. A lot of people. You're correct. That's what makes you the armchair XO. <laughs> can, can we demote me to lawn chair XO? I, I just don't want an armchair. Okay, lawn chair feels, it is. Feels too fan. Okay, lawn chair XO. I'll, I'll wear that badge with pride. Okay. So, the Americans, you want to know what their casualty count was? <sighs> Honestly, with the numbers you were giving me running through it in my head, I was going to assume two dead, three wounded. Too high. No dead, two wounded? Too high. Somebody suffered a paper cut. Too high. Somebody got thirsty in the middle of the battle and had to fet sent for water. Too high. Oh my... Somebody looked up at the sun a little too long, got the sun in their eyes, and they got sweaty. Too high. Oh my... Did, were they all just fine and dandy at the end of the day? Yep. I have nothing to say. It's That's a good thing. <laughs> People not dying is a good thing. But that's, that is that is breaking the rules of running the math through in my head beforehand. I'm glad to dash your expectations. <laughs> People not getting hurt and not dying, good things. Yes. Confusing, but good. Yeah. So they, of course, retreat now, the Mexican forces. And the next day, two American whalers appear off the coast. And the Mexicans took one look at them, said, Oh no, the Navy's here. <laughs> and they flee. Oh, uh, <laughs> while that's hilarious, the only thing that could have made it better is if the whalers just decided to uh, send a shore party up and then they see the big burly whalers that are used to harpooning, you know, massive sea mammals and, mm, well, we're at war. I'm feeling patriotic today. Yeah. So, after the attack on... San Jose del Cabo is done. Commodore Shubrick, he sends the USS Southampton and the USS Portsmouth to reinforce Lieutenant Haywood. And they get there on the 26th of the November and the 3rd of December. And that is where we're going to leave this one because it happened again. It happened again? Yeah. It's pretty much the exact same thing that happened at La Paz. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, you know, they went back down south. Then they tried to siege La Paz. And then when they failed with that, guess what they tried to do? La Paz number two. No, that was La Paz number two. Oh, God. Do, do we go for a third? Now we try a siege of San Jose del Cabo. Guys, Mexico's a huge country. 
there is more than just these two coastal towns. <laughs> Think of all that contested territory you could be fighting over. Yeah. So, now we are in early 1848. And we're back with Captain Manuel Bendia. He takes about 300 peasants to fight the U.S. Navy on the West Coast. And, you know, it's failed three times now. So he says, let's go for a fourth. And marches his force up to San Jose del Cabo and initiates a siege. So it's estimated 300, like I said. But it is said here that there are several Yaku natives also fighting alongside them. We don't have a number on them, though. So now that they have been reinforced, they have 27 Marines, 16 sailors, and 20 Californo militiamen. And guess what? They still have the nine-pound cannon. I mean, why wouldn't they? It wasn't taken. In fact, it did a lot of work. And they added two more. Oh, no. They have three artillery pieces and a shore battery now. Because the plant, because the Portsmouth was like, hey, you guys, you can have this. And we'll go get some more. <laughs> a cannon? For little old me? It's a Christmas miracle. So, Lieutenant... Charles Haywood is like, thanks, guys. Appreciate the reinforcements. Uh, a couple hundred more men would be nice. But, of course, they didn't have that. <laughs> so once the two boats leave, they're, again, isolated. And if you didn't know, this was at the tip of the peninsula. So Lieutenant Haywood, he takes his garrison and says, you know what, guys? We did good last time. Let's reinforce our positions and make it even better because guess what that's what they did at La Perez and it worked for them and this time we have three cannons yeah so for two weeks they sat there reinforcing the position having a jolly good time and had no skirmishes no contact with the Mexican army or any enemy troops whatsoever because they were pretty much recovering from their failed siege at La Paz. And then January 22nd rolls around. And there were about eight men hauling supplies up from the beach to the, the barracks. When they were attacked by the Mexican forces. At least a little bit of them. A scouting party, most likely. Most likely. These supplies were left behind by an American schooner. We don't know which one. And after they attacked, they actually took them prisoner. It wasn't much of an attack. It was pretty much hands up. And they were like, okay, you got us. You want these supplies? So after that, Pinda's like, attack! They attack the barracks position. Hmm. Now... This originally was a surprise, but of course, the surprise didn't last for long because they did not slouch during those two weeks. 
They built a fortification and they trained. And so they quickly got into position. Now, there was a little bit of a complication. And what was that? Well, once the musket fire started, 50 women and children started fleeing to the Americans. Luckily, there were no reports of injuries. Now, the fighting actually continued for a few days, and the Mexicans started taking over the town little by little. And by February 10th, they occupied all of the town except for where the garrison was. So right there in that position were the United States militiamen, the Marines and sailors, and, and the town's women and children. Now, the Mexicans got a little bit more smart with what they were going to do, and they started skirmishing with them from the buildings in the town instead of doing direct attacks. <laughs> they, they didn't burn the town down and then continue their attacks. They're actually using it as cover. I was going to say, so instead of, you know, burn everything to the ground, you know, let everything get to a nice smoldery ash and then charge headlong, it's, we'll take shots from cover and uh, try and whittle them down. Right. So, a few days later, the second-in-command, a Lieutenant McLannan, he was wounded. He was the second-in-command. And they also capture the garrison's water supply. But they don't know how it happened. So, at this point, the siege was actually working. I mean, yeah, no water, that's kind of a timetable, especially with 50 civilians and then a garrison. No water, no food. So, we don't know how, but Schubert learns of the siege, and he sends the same boat that broke up the last one, the USS Cyan, <laughs> in it to try and relieve the garrison force. So three days after the water supply was shut off, the USS Cyan reaches the waters off of San Jose del Cabo and offloads 102 officers and men to attack the town. Just showing up, all right, all right, guys, you had your fun. Now get the hell out of here. Now, they did get ambushed because they were not fooled. They were like, oh, hey, here they come. And, of course, Lieutenant Haywood also learns of the landing because how can you miss the USS Cyan coming into port? And he leaves half his men under the protection of the battery and barracks, and he takes the other half, and he slips out of the town and go to join the relief force and somehow miss the ambush. They did not see any sign of the ambush, so on the way back... All of them fell into the ambush. Oh, oh, guys. Oh, guys. So, the Americans were fired on from concealed positions. And the Americans were like, Charge! They charged them. Usually it's the other way around. Yeah. And the Mexicans were like, Oh, crap. <laughs> Get out of here. And they retreat. They route, actually. It's a, it's a complete route. Well, I mean, I suppose if they've been feeling hot to trot between capturing the water and 
how much they outnumbered them. Suddenly seeing, you know, over a hundred sailors and officers from the Cyan. Like, wait, 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 wait. If we can see a hundred, that means there, there, there could be another hundred over there. And another hundred behind that hill. And we gotta get the hell out of here. Yeah. As soon as the Americans charged, they all were like, Nope. Peace. We're out. Sorry. This has been a misunderstanding. Go get the general. It's said that a lot of the Mexicans only fired one shot before dropping the rifles and running. I mean, this is back in the day where you have one shot and then, you know, you need to call time out for about 30 seconds to a minute, depending on how well trained you are. Yeah. So this ambush, it only lasted a couple minutes. And then there was some hand-to-hand fighting, but it, it didn't last long. So after this failed ambush, the the siege broke. They were like, it happened again, General. <laughs> Darn it, the Navy showed up. Why can't you guys stay out of your own... Stay in the water, don't come on land. That's against the rules. Yeah. And, and, uh, so they left, and they were they were done. So, casualty count... There is a little bit of discrepancy, but they're saying between 13 to 35 Mexican militiamen were dead between both the siege and the ambush. And many others, quote unquote, wounded. We have three Americans killed, two of the defenders, and one from the group that got ambushed from the Cyan and a unknown number of wounded. Oh, on the bright side, to finish this this siege off, the American forces did attack the camp and sent the general, this genius of a general, fleeing into the woods and they did rescue their eight men that were captured in the beginning. Well, he was underappreciated in his time, but we'll make sure his legacy carries on. Do we have to? (laughs) Dude, we just spent an episode talking about his daring escapades. (laughs) And we're putting this out to be as a podcast in perpetuity. We just immortalized him. I still have time to bleep out his name. <laughs> well, folks, uh, you'll have to tell us whether the captain allowed a general genius to have his name in or not. All right, so we're going to cover one more and then we'll finish this up next episode. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right, we'll leave five battles for the last one. So this is going to be the skirmish of Todos Santos. This was pretty much the last clash of the war. On March 26th, Colonel Burton, he takes a Captain Nagli and 217 men, and they send them towards San Antonio. And on the 27th, There is a detachment, a scouting party, if you will, of 15. They come up to and find the 
Mexican forces at San Antonio. And we're like, wait a minute. Is that him? <laughs> is that the man himself? <laughs> you want to capture him? Let's do it. They sneak up and they grab him. They have Pindia. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. So Burton learns that the Baja Californians were going over to Todos Santos and that their plan was to gather their forces there so they can retreat towards Magdalena Bay. So Burton's like, no, we need to get over there and kick their butts before they get out of there. So that brings us to March 30th. Burton, him and his men, they're nearing Todos Santos. He sends again Captain Nagli ahead with 45 men on horseback and sent them to flank them and attack from the rear. So the Californias did lay an ambush on a road, but Burton, he was like, that looks suspicious. Yo, guys, we're going along the ridge instead. <laughs> uh, the classic, if it looks like an ambush, it smells like an ambush, it might be an ambush. Let's not go through that. So they go up this ridge and they, lo and behold, right there in front of them are two to three hundred Mexicans and Yakui Indians. Fellows, it's 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 not what it looks like. We we were not gonna take some shots at you, we swear. We are hiking enthusiasts who are concerned about cougars. And we're sticking to that story. Yeah. Now the Mexican forces they see them appear and they're like hmm fall back. <laughs> they fall back to a hill and they start staring at each other. So we have a quote from Private William Redmond Ryan. Quote, At last, after many days and nights of weary marching, we came to a wide plain, all sand and stones and prickly bushes. But the path across was so narrow as to oblige us to take to the Indian file again. So, single file. However, in spite of the intense heat and dust, and of the burning thirst that devoured us, we pushed on in tolerable spirits. For we now begin to distinguish the heights on which the town of Todo Santos is situated, and from which we were separated only by the plain we are now crossing. As we draw nearer, we plainly discern the enemy dotted about on convenient elevations, the main body of the enemy lay posted on the summit of a hill, beyond musket shot, and apparently extremely well mounted and armed. As we draw nearer, they waved their flags by way of defiance and commenced a dropping fire, which, however, did us no injury, although it served to animate our courage. Presently, we commenced the ascent of the rugged steep, on which they were so ad advantageously posted, when the firing became more sustained, and was returned by us with great spirit and fatal effect. All at once we were saluted with a discharge of musketry 
from the borders of a dense forest of brushwood and cacti. Stretching from the foot of the heights along the right side of the plain we had so recently cleared, and in which this ambushade had been prepared for us. Into this part of the forest the party I belonged to was ordered to plunge, and charge the enemy at the point of the bayonet, an order we executed with the rapidity of lightning, succeeding after some hard fighting in which a great number of Californians and yakes were killed in dislodging these sharp shooters, whom we pursued with great spirit. So that was a first-hand account from Private William Redmond Ryan. So it sounds like they pursued the retreating Mexican force after they had some time to organize and figure out a game plan and in the process were ambushed from the flank. No. No? No. What this describes as, first they sight the Mexican forces, and as they approach, they climbed a hill to get uh, more advantageous positions. And so he describes how they charged up the hill, and the volleys of gunfire going both ways, and then he was told, affix bayonet, charge. And then hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Okay. But I said it like an idiot. He says it with poetry. <laughs> now, after they fought for a while, Nagli comes with his flanking maneuver, which ends the engagement, and the Mexican forces go, Zoom! Here, there, and everywhere. Yes. Burton reports that the Mexicans lose 10, and the Americans, none. So after this skirmish, Toto Santos was now secured. And the Americans at this point are really hungry. They go into the fields and they start feeding on sugarcane and green beans. Breakfast of champions. Right. Now, Nagli, he does not get to enjoy the sugarcane and green beans. Burton sends him and his 50 men towards... Magdalena Bay to try to cut off the enemy's retreat. And once the other men were bellies were full of sugarcane and green beans, they go to La Paz with all their prisoners of war, which included Captain Pindia and six of his officers and 103 NCOs and privates. Nagli comes back after he did a pursuit of 350 miles. That's some dedication to the pursuit. Yeah. He didn't really find much of much sign of the enemy. He only captures five additional soldiers, but he did surprise a camp of the sleeping natives and captures two of them. And on the march back, for some reason, Nagli does a war crime. <laughs> and he has the two natives shot. Ah, oh, dude. So, you remember Private William Redmond Ryan? He had thoughts on this. He wrote about this, yes. Would you like to hear it? I'm hoping that Raymond Ryan is, uh... Let's hear it. <laughs> 
quote, We had been back about ten days when we heard the return of Black Jack and a party of fifty men who had been sent out on an expedition to head off the gulf, to the head of the gulf. And the same person who brought the snooze likewise informed us that two Indians, whom they had captured some fifty miles off and conducted hither, had just been shot by command of this officer. Several of us went to the spot where the tragedy had been enacted, and there saw the two dead bodies, and several of our men digging graves in the sand. I felt deep disgust when I came to learn the particulars of this murder, which seemed to have been perpetuated without any pretext, even regarding it in the light of an execution. It appeared they had surrendered themselves prisoners, and the men had spared their lives, notwithstanding Black Jack's orders that every Indian that they took should be shot on the spot. He justified the act by asserting they had committed violence on some women and one of the ranches, where the party had halted some days before, but this was the first the men had heard of it. And the whole story was besides so improbable seeing the men had never been lost sight of, that it could be attributed to nothing save a reckless spirit of bloodshedding. I afterwards asserted that one of the victims was a Yaqui, the other a native of La Paz, who had joined this Indian tribe. His mother and sister were both kneeling over his corpse and giving way to their grief in the most frantic manner. The general impression was that presuming their guilt they ought to have been at least tried, especially as they had reached headquarters. And I remember that the feeling became very strong against Black Jack on the account of this sad offense, which we looked upon as calculated to get us a name for cruelty, which we really did not deserve. Oh, Private William, uh, I'm really glad that you felt that way. And it sounds like a lot of uh, his fellow you know, enlisted men felt the same way. It is nice to finally see non-racist actions. It sucks. It sucks that they were executed, but it is, like you said, a nice refresher that, you know, we don't have the accounts practically dancing on the graves with glee. Yeah. So after this blatant murder of these two men, the military governor of Alta California, a Colonel Mason. He orders Nagley arrested. Now, unfortunately, he escapes punishment when a pardon was granted to military and naval officers acting in wartime by President Polk. Yeah. Yeah, kind of hard to supersede a presidential pardon. Yeah, but it should never have been given. War crimes are war crimes. Oh, I, I, I don't disagree one bit. It's just, like, once that's issued, that's hands are tied. Yeah. All right, so that is the end of the skirmish. So, how you feeling? We had highs. We had lows. We had whalers. We have Pindia. We have the cyan. <laughs> <laughs> No, overall, uh, it seems like the U.S. Navy's role in this war was, like we said last episode, 
Hey guys, we're here. Oh, they're retreating. Wait, come back. We wanted to shoot cannons at you. Yeah, that and a lot of naval officers are leading garrisons. Yeah. So pretty much we're playing the role of uh, ocean-borne artillery and then, you know, ferrying in reinforcements and officers. And doing a lot of fighting, too. Yeah, and, and then, you know, some of those officers are hopping off the boat like, yeah, you, you guys got this, right? I, I feel like uh, stretching my legs a little. Let's go this way. So, yeah. They're holding their own. So this is where we are going to leave it. If you want to reach out to the XO, you can do so at our email address, which is... All right, folks, let's see if I can make the Captain Cringe and just disgust again. You will. <laughs> US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, I'm so proud. <laughs> or you can tweet at him how awesome that recitation was at USN History Pod. So proud. And if you guys could help us out by leaving a review, telling a friend about the show, letting them know that will only help us grow. And we also have a swag shop that you can, if you so desire, you can get a t-shirt with the logo and there's a couple of paintings by the captain as well, like a painting of the USS Peacock, or at least an imagined one, and a couple other sailing vessels right now, and we'll listen to ideas of what you might want up there. And that link will be in the show notes. Now, Captain, uh, since we've gotten to talking about whalers, that does remind me, I have this excellent idea to start issuing the security teams in case uh, we're boarded. Have you heard of a bomb lance by chance? Is that anything like Lance Torpedo? Well, I, I, I foresee no possible problems by issuing this to the security teams. Maybe the box wasn't such a bad idea in the first place. <laughs> No, no, no. This this idea is too good to be put in the box. Not the idea, you. Oh, darn. Well, if you tell me to go in the box, I'll go in the corner then. Until next time, folks. Fair winds and following seas. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing 2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2